Pastor Greg and I had met with a couple of our missionaries this week, uh, Dave and Lynn Johnson, and as we were sitting down to lunch with them, we had asked them the question, uh, what do you think the American church can le learn from the churches that find themselves struggling at times and hard times? And uh, he responded, our dependence on the Lord in prayer. And I think when you have so many available resources here in a church like this, we're reminded of our great need to simply rely on God in prayer. You know, as we turn to the word, can we take a moment to bow in prayer? Uh, Father, we come before you and we are thankful, we are grateful. We're thankful for this sweet, sweet time of worship where we can gather together in your name and to celebrate our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Not do, only do we have an opportunity to worship you in giving and in song, but also coming under the teaching of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would go before us, let your spirit lead and guide the way, remove distraction, help us to stay focused fully on you. And so, Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's a story that's told about a man who was flying on an airplane. He was making a short trip. He was a believer. He was a Christian, and flying from San Diego to Los Angeles, uh, he just pulled out his Christian book, to a Christian book, in order to pass the time. The man sitting next to him noticed the book and said, Sir, can I ask you a question? Are you a religious person? To which the man next to him, the Christian, said, Well, you could say, Yes, I am. To which the other man replied, I'm religious too. Well, the believer and the man sitting next to him began to have a conversation about religion and faith. And the believer asked the man sitting next to him, he said, Sir, uh, if you could sum up your religion or your faith in one line, how would you describe it? The man said this, he said, we're all part of the problem, but we're also all part of the solution. The believer responded to him and said, Sir, would you like to hear one liner that sums up the Christian faith? He said, absolutely. And the believer said this, we are all part of the problem, but only one person is the solution, and his name is Jesus. You know, this morning, as you walked into church, I'm sure as you take a look at the world around you or you take a look at your life, there are many problems that you and I face. Uh, maybe you walked in this morning with some financial problems. Last time you took a look at your bank statement, you noticed that there are some struggles going on there in your bank. Uh, maybe you have some relational problems in regards to your family, your marriage, or, or, or relationships even in the workplace with coworkers or even a boss. Maybe you walked in with problems that are physical in nature in regards to your health or a loved one that you're caring for whose health is right now struggling. Or maybe it's a spiritual problem you've walked in with. Maybe even during our time of worship as we were singing praises to the Lord, there is some unrepentant sin in your life and you need to get right with the Lord this morning. Or maybe your biggest problem is you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you're need, in need of salvation and your need of forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. You know, regardless of the problems you walked in with this morning, with either problems in your life or problems in, your, in the world, I want to begin a new series with you. A series in the letter of 1 Peter that invites us, that invites us not to make much of the problems that we face, but to make much of the one who can solve them, and his name is Jesus. 
And so I want to invite you to 1 Peter with me. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses together. And I've entitled this series, Faithful Living in a Fallen World. You see, those whom Peter is writing to in this letter, 1 and 2 Peter, are individuals who are facing their own problems. But the problems they're facing go beyond our first world problems. They are facing problems of persecution. They are having their land confiscated. They have threats on their life. And their problems are going to intensify in the years ahead as Peter is writing them. So certainly they are facing problems indeed because of persecution for their faith. And what we get to read about here in our text is Paul's ultimate purpose, Peter's ultimate purpose in writing this is to ground these believers in a deeper understanding of their faith and the salvation that they've been given in Jesus Christ. And this is a helpful reminder to any of us this morning, whether we're facing good times or in hard times, that if ever we should face what they're experiencing in 1 Peter, that we can have the proper perspective. Because the question arises as you read a letter like this, what happens when the attitude of the culture shifts from apathy to that of hostility? How do you respond? What do you do as a believer, as a Christian in the culture and society that we are in when the attitude of the society shifts from indifference to that of persecution? What do you do when the society and the culture around us look at believers, Christians, and their beliefs and say, we're not simply content in you having your beliefs and us having ours. Let's just coexist, as they say. But we are interested in silencing you, and if we can't silence you because you're a faithful believer, making disciples, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ will threaten your life and even take it from you. First Peter is a letter that provides perspective and how to ground ourselves in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially in the most difficult of times. And so my prayer as we kick off this new series, as you walk through 1 Peter with us together, that as you walk through it, you would not have a greater view of your problems, but you would have a greater view of the one who can solve them, and his name is Jesus. 1 Peter, we're going to be in the first 12 verses together, and we're going to talk this morning about the encouraging words God gives us in discouraging times that strengthen our faith. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, angels, desire to look into. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning we get to begin a journey through the letter of 1 Peter And as we embark on our journey of what it looks like to live faithfully in a fallen world, we consider this morning some encouraging words were given by the Lord himself through the Apostle Peter that are provided in discouraging times so that they might strengthen our faith. As we walk through our text together, what encouraging words are we given in discouraging times? First, the reminder of our past election. Verses 1 to 2, in the form of a greeting, we are given a reminder of our past election, of God's choosing us and setting his affections on us before the foundations of the world. And this past election is a reminder that God loves you and cares for you regardless of the hardships you're navigating currently. You know, as he introduces us to this reminder of God's choosing us and setting his affection on us. He, he does so in the context of a greeting. This is a letter, of course, and Peter is writing it. It is presented in the form of a letter. You see the one who's writing, the author. You see the recipients, the readers, and then thirdly, you see the greeting that's given. Uh, we're introduced first to the author. His name is Peter. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you ever take time to read the Gospels or you have read them, you know all throughout the New Testament, there's a lot said about Peter, but not a lot that Peter writes in the Gospels, I mean in the New Testament, of course, because Paul writes the majority of the New Testament letters. Now, I don't know about you, but when I come across a letter written by Peter, first and second Peter, it's a moment of excitement because I'm very curious what Peter has to say. I mean, this is one of the disciples of Jesus who walked it with him for a few years. This is Peter whom Jesus saw in Matthew 4 and said to Peter and Andrew, follow me because I will make you fishers of men. These were common fishermen. And Peter was a man who had his strengths as well as many weaknesses, many, many weaknesses. On many occasions, you read about a man who put his foot in his mouth on many, many occasions. But what the Lord Jesus does after he dies, rises from the dead and tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them is the Lord transforms Peter's weaknesses into strengths to make an impact for the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts in chapter 2, you learn about a man who as the spokesperson of the disciples or the apostles is a man who preaches and 3,000 get saved. 
In Acts chapter 4, he preaches and 5,000 get saved. And the Jerusalem church is birthed. And the disciples are being made. And they will eventually spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When you hear that a letter is written by Peter, it's a moment of rejoicing. Now, there are many people these days who write tell-all books, you know. You know the folks who hang out with celebrities or, or even presidents and often those who were in their administration, uh, they'll spend time with, for instance, the president and after the presidency or even during it sometimes these things come out and these tell-all books come out. And you want to know, okay, what, what are they going to tell us about them, that their personal experiences or personal anecdotes? And when you introduce the first and second Peter, I don't know what goes through your mind, but I'm thinking, I wonder what Peter's going to talk about. I wonder what personal experiences he's going to share, any personal anecdotes he's going to give us. What can we learn more about Jesus? But when you get into the content of first and second Peter, you learn that it's a message that is apostolic in nature that very much reflects that of Paul's and the other apostles because what Peter knows we need is a deeper understanding of our salvation and a deeper faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter grounds these believers in. You know what you and I need more than anything in good times and in bad is a deeper understanding of the foundational principles of the Christian faith regarding our salvation and God's choosing of us, setting his affections upon us from the foundations of the world. Peter is the author. Peter it describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The New Testament apostles were those who were called by Christ and sent out by Christ. We already talked about Matthew 4 where Peter is called and alongside Andrew and is sent out to become a fisher of men. As a New Testament apostle, he, along with others, lays the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20, it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, put, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles who received the revelation of God from Jesus Christ uh, are aligned around the cornerstone who is Christ, and that revelation is what the church is built upon. We're reminded as a church that, that, that we are built, we're an apostolic church in the sense that we reflect the revelation that's been given to the apostles. In Acts 2, 42 to 47, we read about how the early church, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They received the revelation, and with that revelation, proclaimed the truth of the gospel, laid the foundation of the church, and we are built upon that. And so they laid the foundation of the church. Um, uh, thirdly, as an apostle, Peter was also a witness of the resurrection of Christ. If you read in Acts chapter 1, if you remember Judas, who killed himself, needed to be replaced. And one of the requirements for his replacement among the disciples, among the apostles, was that they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And so Peter as that is a, as a witness of the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, we're reminded that apostles, at least Peter was, and all the apostles, the New Testament apostles, were attested to by miracles, signs, and wonders. And so when we're talking about New Testament apostles and those who claim the authority of an apostle, those 
are unique to the early church. They're no longer apostles and no longer anyone who can claim the authority of a New Testament apostle. Now, some people will say I'm sent by God as an apostle, lowercase a, but the reality is we are all sent by God to be disciples and to make disciples. But when it comes to the New Testament apostles, we get to see they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were called and sent out by Christ himself, that they indeed were attested to by miracle signs and wonders, and they laid the foundation of the church around the cornerstone and uh, cornerstone of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is the author of this letter, and we have it in our hands to read this morning. And it's incredibly relevant to us in the church today as it was when it was written. Secondly, we don't just see the author, we also see the recipients of the letter. They are described as pilgrims, at least in our translation, pilgrims of the dispersion. Pilgrims can be translated strangers, and, the dias- and, and of the dispersion or the diaspora is referring to those who are scattered. Now, it's interesting to note um, in James, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, James sends his letter to those who have been scattered or the diaspora of the Jews who have been displaced out of Palestine. But when Peter writes, and he refers to the pilgrims who, who have been dispersed or who have been scattered of the diaspora, he's not just speaking to Jews who have been displaced. He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles of the church who have been displaced. And what this text is telling us, if I could translate it to you, to the pilgrims of the dispersion or to strangers who are scattered. The reason they are referred to as strangers who are scattered throughout these different places throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. The reason they are described as strangers who are scattered is because we're reminded or they are reminded by Peter as we are reminded this morning that they are but strangers of this world. They are strangers in the sense that they are foreigners. This world is not their home, as this world is not our home. Our investment should not be in those things where, where, where moth and rust destroy, but our investment should be in those eternal things that last forever. And as we invest in those things that last forever, we're reminded that this world is not our home. You know, I used to live in Arizona, and I used to live just a couple blocks from the Arizona-Mexico border. I lived so close to the border, I could literally walk across myself. And so on a number of occasions, we would do ministry across the border, or we'd just have lunch with one of my friends. And can I tell you, as soon as I crossed the border, I felt like a foreigner. And I'll tell you why, because I did not speak the language. I'd go into the restaurant, thank God for my friends who spoke Spanish, and they actually paid attention in, during Spanish in school, and they could order for me. But as I'm sitting there eating, I know that the, the language is different and the customs are different. So I walk into the country and my customs and the languages are different. We're reminded that we are strangers scattered in this world and we are reminded that we are but foreigners. Our language and our customs should not reflect the value systems of this world. You and I are distinct. We should look different. We should not necessarily seek to fit in. Why? Because we are not of this world. As strangers, we are foreigners. Jesus said it this way in John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. We are in the world, church, but we are not of the world. We are distinct from them. And so we should not be surprised when we are set apart, when our value systems do not reflect the value systems of others and the way we raise our family, how we define the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life because our customs and our languages are not of this world. As strangers who have been scattered, not only are they foreigners, but they are also, and we are also, temporary residents. These individuals are facing problems, not first world problems. They are facing problems of persecution. And in the face of persecution, they're reminded that suffering is temporary, but the glory of heaven is eternal. You're going to face some problems. You're going to face some difficulties. You're going to feel the pressures of the world pushing in around you. But give thanks to the Lord for the hope of salvation. This life and the suffering in it does not compare to the eternal glory of heaven that will be forever and ever. As scattered who are strangers uh, throughout uh, the Asia Minor region, throughout these locations, this is their reminder as it is ours. Well, what reminder are they given? What is their identity? What they're reminded of in verse 2 is the love and care of God demonstrated to them. I want to take a moment to personalize this before we get into it. And I want to tell you just as Peter tells them, because this is a message from God through Peter to all the church in all generations, that God loves you and he cares for you. Regardless of the problems you face, the invitation of 1 Peter is not to make great the, the problems that you face, but to make great the God who can solve them. And what we're reminded of here is how much God loves you and how much God cares for you. How much does he love you? How much does he care for you? The Father chose you according to his foreknowledge. In verse 2, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect there is the word chose there, to choose. Whenever we elect a president, we choose a president. Election day is an opportunity to choose those who will govern over us, and we choose those representatives accordingly. When it says that that, that the Father elected us according to the foreknowledge of God, we're reminded that God chose us before the foundations of the world. And it says according to his foreknowledge, which means according to the affections he set upon us beforehand. Foreknowledge does not just refer to knowing beforehand. Foreknowledge refers to setting one's affections on one beforehand. We have a four-month-old Baby, well, he's going to be four months in a few days. And last year, around February, it was my birthday. And in February, I learned already that I was going to have a baby. I didn't know at that point that it was going to be a son. Learned that later. But can I tell you, the moment that I learned that, I set my affections on him. It was my birthday. And I was opening some gifts. My wife had given me a last one. She said, hey, I got one more for you. So I grabbed it. I started to open it. And... It was an old iPhone box. 
you know? And I'm thinking, I've got a great, a great phone. Why are you giving me another phone? And then I started to look at it, and I said, this is even an older model. Why are you giving me this? <laughs> so I was a bit confused for the moment. As I began to open it up, I found in there a pregnancy test <laughs> with two lines on it. <laughs> it took me a, a minute to realize we were going to have a baby later that year, right? And can I tell you, at that moment, I set my affections on that baby. I did not know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, but I set my affections on him, and I loved him even before he was born. How much more God our Father in heaven who chose us and set his affections upon us before the foundations of the world, he did not simply choose you because you would choose him. He chose you because of who he is. That's how much God loves you and cares for you. God elected you. He chose you according to his foreknowledge. But not only has the Father chosen you, but the Spirit has sanctified you. The Spirit has set you apart to himself as holy. Sanctified means set apart. Set apart means holy. You belong to the Lord. You want to know how much God loves you and cares for you? The Father chose you and set his affections upon you before the foundations of the world. The Spirit sanctified you. And you know what the Son did? He redeemed you. The word redeemed is is a word that reminds us that you are bought out of slavery. We've been bought out of the slavery of sin. This is how it's read here. It's in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How have we been redeemed? We've been bought by his blood. You know how much God loves you? You know how much God cares for you? I know you're facing problems and difficulties and hardships, but remember what he has done and what he's continuing to do in and through you as a believer and as a Christian. God knew you. He set his affections on you before the foundations of the world. The Spirit sanctified you and the Son redeemed you. He came from heaven to earth. He died a sinner's death on a cross. He lived a perfect life in order to die a sinner's death. And he took your place and mine. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He cares for us. And we need to be reminded of that again and again and again. And let me tell you, your faith will be strengthened. What you need this morning is not some good stories to heighten your, your experience this morning. What you need to be rooted and grounded in is the reminder of how God has and continues to work in your salvation history to draw you to himself and set you apart as his own. And then he gives this greeting, having reminded them of their past election and says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace be multiplied in abundance to you. Sometimes at the beginning of the message, I'll often say grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. When we have an opportunity to do that, we have an opportunity what Peter did here. We have an opportunity to remind one another of the grace he has lavished upon us that results in the peace that we have with God and one another. When we're talking about grace, we're reminded of God's generous favor that's lavished upon sinners who don't deserve it. 
and saints who are desperately in need of it. The grace of God is the favor of God, the unmerited favor of God that not just provides us salvation, but enables us to live the Christian life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a good example of that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 reminds us that grace is God's unmerited favor. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we're reminded that salvation is a result of God's undeserved favor that he has lavished upon us. But not only does he give us his favor and his grace to provide us salvation, but he enables us to live the Christian life because while works don't save us, they will not fail to be produced in those who are genuinely saved. That's why verse 10 tells us we are his workmanship. Another word there is, we're his masterpiece. We shine forth his glory created in Christ Jesus, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in these good deeds. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that sanctifies us and enables us to live the Christian life. And so we're reminded of the generous favor of God that's been lavished upon us, grace to you. What a wonderful way to greet one another. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what we're given. Peace is the result of that grace. When we receive the unmerited favor of God, uh, we're reminded that although sin separates us, what Christ did through the cross is he redeemed us and he reconciled us back to the Father and we now have peace with God. We are born into this world, separated from God because our hearts are in a state of rebellion and they are expressed in our attitudes, actions, and affections. That's why Christ came to die, take our place in order to forgive our sins and reconcile us back to the Father. But not only do we receive peace with God, we receive peace with one another. You know, when we came to the Lord's table today, we, we, we didn't just talk about the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, but what it accomplished. Not just in our salvation and giving us peace with God, but in giving us peace with one another. There's a reason why before we partake of the communion, I often say, if you need to get right with God, do that. But if you need to get right with a brother or sister in Christ, do that because the death of Christ not only gave us peace with him, but peace with one another. And so we can greet one another with confidence, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What encouraging words do we receive in discouraging times that ground our faith in Christ. It's the reminder of our past election that God has set his affections upon us before the foundations of the world. If I could give you a takeaway, it would be this this morning. Strengthen your faith in his love and his care for you. If you're facing some hardships this morning, you wonder, God, why? I don't understand this. These hardships are, are beyond my capacity to, 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 to deal with them. Uh, strengthen your faith this morning, being reminded of his love and his care for you. Let me give you a couple ways to do that. First, strengthen your faith by being reminded how much God loves you. We need to be reminded again and again, and we need to preach to ourselves again and again, the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and the Spirit sanctifies us. What a great verse to memorize in times of trial and tribulation. 
hardship and difficulty. We're not just talking about problems. We're talking about problems of persecution. But regardless of your problem, he is the solution. Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then secondly, strengthen your faith by being reminded about how much God cares for you. Maybe someone is going through a trial this morning and you need to be reminded that God loves you and he cares for you and he's got your back. He's watching out for you. Yesterday, we took our girls out to one of those trampoline parks, you know. They go jump in and they got these big old foam pits that they jump into. And can I tell you, at those, at those places, uh, there's a ton of kids running around every which direction. They got parents watching their kids, but the only two that I've got my eyes fixed on are these two little ladies, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And they're just, you know, jumping around, moving here and moving there, but they don't know that I'm watching their back. If someone starts running across about to knock them out because they're, they're like 150 pounds, we're getting ready to move them out of the way. These kids jump into the foam pits not seeing that there's a side that's going to knock their head and make them go unconscious, you know? And so we're watching them, making sure they jump into the foam and don't hit their head because I love them and I care for them, but they don't even know the care that I have for them and the way I'm working behind the scenes. You may not realize how God's got your back, but he's watching out for you. Even in the hardest trials and tribulations, you are a recipient of his grace, his favor, and his divine care. You and I can trust him, even when we don't understand it or we don't see how it's all working together for good as he's conforming us into the image of Christ. We say, Lord, I trust you. Can you strengthen your faith in his love and his care for you this morning? And so first, what encouraging words are we given in discouraging times to strengthen our faith? It's the reminder that the father chose us in the past, his past choosing, his past election. Secondly, our future inheritance in verses three to five. As we continue to read, we get to hear about our future inheritance in the context of a doxology, a declaration of praise to the Lord. And the declaration of praise, uh, we see the reasons for it because of the benefits of being born of God, the benefits of being begotten, our future inheritance. Verse three reads this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are invited not just to endure problems, endure hardships, endure persecutions, but we are invited to worship in the midst of them. That's what sets believer and a Christian apart. Praise be to the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. These folks have been displaced. They've had their land taken away. Some are being burnt at the stake and people's lives are being threatened and yet they're still worshiping. Why? Because their faith is grounded and rooted in the Lord and the promise of their future inheritance, suffering now, glory later. What a great reminder we have in the Lord indeed. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who what according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. Uh, he lists the reasons we should praise him. It's because of the benefits of our new birth, the benefits of being begotten, the benefits of being born again, 
by the one who chose us and sanctifies us and redeems us through the Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we get to see we are recipients first. As those who have been born again, the benefit is we are recipients of mercy according to what? His abundant mercy. Notice there it doesn't say according to our abundant merit, but according to his abundant mercy. God didn't look at you and say, wow, he or she is unique among the rest of my creation. He is set apart or she is set apart as holy and lives their lives perfectly that I'm going to set them apart as mine and grant them salvation. No, because of his mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, is, is withholding that which we deserve. We're reminded when we're born into this world with hearts that are in a state of rebellion against him, we are deserving of wrath and eternal judgment. But instead, God shows us mercy because we are recipients of his divine favor, the grace of God. And he gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. He gives us everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. And so the first benefit of being begotten and born of God is that we are recipients of mercy. As we continue to read, we are also recipients of a living hope. He has begotten us again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The world's hope, as we often refer to it, is wishful thinking. In Oregon, we say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. That's wishful thinking. The weatherman tells you, I, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope it does rain. And so uh, you have wishful thinking. But when we're talking about hope, we're not talking about wishful thinking. We're talking about confident expectation. And the hope is not dead or in a, in, in, in a process of decay, but is living and growing. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is living because the one we've trusted in, the one we've placed our faith in, the one who, whom our faith should be strengthened in is alive. <laughs> the reason we come to worship every Sunday morning is because he is alive. He died, he was buried, but the third day he rose again in newness of life. At the cross, he died for our sins. At the resurrection, he conquered sin, death, and Satan, and ratified the work that was accomplished. Praise be to God that we have a living hope. And so our living hope, we, what we see here, we we're recipients of mercy, a living hope. And then verse 4, what we're getting at, to what? An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. When we're talking about the inheritance that we are going to receive, we're talking about the riches of heaven. The moment you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, the inheritance of heaven was transferred to your account. Listen, if you are facing present tribulations and trouble, even to the point of persecution, the glories of heaven do not compare to the temporary sufferings of this world. The inheritance here is described as incorruptible. In other words, it's free from decay or death. You might receive an inheritance signed to your name, but you never know the banks these days. <laughs> you don't know how things are going to uh, fall into place or fall out of line. And so sometimes your inheritance that you think you had really is nothing at all. When it comes to the inheritance of heaven, it's free from decay, it's free from death. 
incorruptible, undefiled. And there's free from corruption. And it says, and it does not fade away. It is indeed sure. And then the final benefit of being begotten, why we praise the Lord in the face even of our greatest problems, even persecution, is because he protects us through it, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Church, we have an eternal inheritance to ground our faith in Christ in light of. What a blessing. I don't know what problems you're facing today, but we're not here to glorify the problem, but to glorify the one who can solve them and who will bring you through the present suffering that you're facing as you're going to inherit an eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. He reminds us of our future inheritance. So strengthen your faith in light of your future inheritance. Let me give you a few takeaways. The first one is this, take time to tell God, thank you. You know, often we have plenty of things to complain about, the problems that you're facing from day to day. Sometimes you don't even know you're complaining, but those closest to you will often let you know. Hopefully they will. And so if you are complaining, the, um, the opportunity is to, is to shift your focus off of glorifying and magnifying the problem because that's what you do when you complain. You get all stressed out and anxious and worried. Why? Because you're focused on the problem. You keep talking about it. Stop talking about it. Keep talking about the greatness of the Lord. What do you talk about what the Lord is doing in your life? The, the, the work that he has done and he continues to do and the inheritance that you have in the future. Take time to tell God thank you. Thank you, Father, for choosing me. Thank you for the spirit who has sanctified me. Thank you for the, for the, for the son who has redeemed me. Thank you for the future inheritance that I have. Take time to tell God thank you. Secondly, adopt an eternal perspective. Ask God to help you see your current circumstances in light of eternity. What are the problems you're facing right now? What are the difficulties you're struggling with? What are the questions you have in your mind that you're saying, God, why haven't you answered my prayers? Lord, help me to see this current circumstance in light of your greater plan and my eternal inheritance. And then thirdly this morning, live in light of your eternal inheritance. I think as Christians, sometimes we forget how privileged and blessed we truly are. People talk, you know, they're always throwing around the word privilege these days. When you want to hear privilege, we as Christians and believers are privileged above all else. We have transferred to our account the blessings of heaven. Let me share with you this story. Jeff Ferreira, walking in Illinois, called his bank to find out his checking account balance. It's a true story. You can imagine his surprise when he heard the electronic voice say, your checking account has a balance of $924,844,302.32. What Jeff Ferreira did not know was he and 826 other customers of his bank were the victims of the worst banking mistake in U.S. history. The First National Bank of Chicago had accidentally transferred more than $726 billion, six times the total worth of the holding company, to 800 customers. Jeff Ferreira, he joked that people told him to transfer it to the Cayman Islands and make a run for it. <laughs> but like most others, he reported the error. 
Can I ask you this morning, what would it be like if you were in Jeff Ferreira's shoes and for a moment you had transferred to your account billions and billions of dollars? You don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder, excuse me. You don't have to wonder, and the reason is because you have transferred to your account the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, greater riches than billions and billions of dollars. You and I are richer beyond measure and blessed beyond our wildest dreams. Not only are we blessed with an eternal inheritance, we can invite others to get it as well. So what encouraging words are we given in discouraging times that strengthen our faith? The reminder of our past election, the reminder of our future inheritance, and then thirdly, the reminder of our present joy. Not only are you invited to endure problems, hardships, and even persecution, and worship in the midst of them, but you are also invited to rejoice in the midst of them. This doesn't make much sense, especially when you're not of this world. (laughs) You're just passing through. People see the tribulation, the hardships you're going through, and they're wondering, what's wrong with this guy or gal? I mean, they're rejoicing in the Lord. How are they able to worship? We get to see how you can endure the trials and tribulations you're facing. Verse 6, it says, in this, what is this, your salvation? The internal inheritance that you receive, you greatly rejoice This is our cause for celebration day in and day out. Whether we're facing good times or bad, we have an opportunity to rejoice in our salvation. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What we're told here is we are to rejoice in the salvation and future inheritance of the Lord despite the trials and tribulations we face. Notice there that Peter does not deny the reality of trials and tribulations. He does not deny the grievances that the trials and tribulation brings, but he invites us to rejoice in the midst of the trials by having a proper perspective. What do we learn about trials in verses 6 to 7? First, we see that trials are both temporary and necessary. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice now for a little while. You have been grieved. Notice carefully there for a little while. In light of eternity, the present suffering does not compare to the future glory. See it in proper perspective. Suffering is temporary. Glory is eternal. And so the tribulation you're facing is just a season of trouble. Thanks be to God that seasons come and go. And you can put your trust in the Lord. Secondly, not only are they uh, not, not only are they temporary, but they're also necessary. The text reads here. Maybe you can underline this. If need be, God has a purpose for the trials that we face, and what we learn here in verse six is that He provides various trials in order to have a purpose behind those trials. Now, we know in Romans 8, 28 to 29 that all things work together for the, good of, for, the, for, for the good of those who love God who've been called according to his purpose. What's that purpose? Well, in the next verse, we learn to conform us into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so whatever trials we face, the purpose of them is to conform us into the likeness of Christ. And so you have a unique trial that's unique to you. Sometimes we're facing our trials and then we look at the other people and we say, why aren't they facing the same one I'm facing? 
Why did they not have to suffer as long as I've suffered? Why are they suffering this way and others are not? And we, we sometimes compare, but there are various trials that God allows us to go through for his greater purposes behind them. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what that purpose is. We know it's to conform us into the image of Christ. You may not know the details, but you can know the greater scheme of God's plan and trust him. That's why we're invited this morning to deepen our understanding that God is sovereign and that we can trust him. As we read here, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials are temporary and trials also are necessary because God has a purpose behind them. Uh, Secondly, we continue to see that uh, what trials do for us in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the second purposes of trials is to reveal, but is also to refine. When you go through trials and tribulations, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. When you're going through hardships, it's easy to trust the Lord when things are going right, right? But when we're faced with hardships and difficulties, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith, and our faith is grounded and rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see through the pain to the person and work of Christ who is sovereign over it and is accomplishing his divine purposes in it. And so we're reminded this morning, it reveals, but also refines. It says, if need be, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. What we're reminded of is our faith is more valuable than some of the most precious things that this world finds near and dear, like gold or silver or money. Why? Because those things perish. Our faith is eternal in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How does God refine our faith here? It tells us he refines our faith by means of these trials. And these trials, what they do is they, 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 they cleanse us of some of, the, some of the things that shouldn't be there and make it more valuable. It says, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you do when you, when you add fire to, to gold and remove the impurities? You make it more valuable. You also strengthen it. And what God does through the trials is he reveals the genuineness of our faith and he provides the ability to strengthen our faith. And then it says in verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The reason we can rejoice is because we see the purpose behind our trials. Listen, we're not invited to rejoice in the trial. I don't know about you, but I'm not saying, Oh, I'm really loving the suffering I'm going through and the pain that it brings. No, but we are to rejoice over the result the trial brings, the refinement that is brought, the revelation of of the genuineness of our faith that is brought, and we are able to rejoice because we see that God is working in and through it. But the greatest motivation for having the ability to rejoice in the face of tribulation, even problems of persecution, is our love for Jesus. Don't miss verse 8. It says, whom you have not seen, you love. Our faith 
is grounded in our love for Christ. And you would say, I don't know how I can love him if he allows these things to happen to me. But your love for him is a response to his love for you. You do not look at his love for you in regards to the present trials that you're facing, also understanding they have a purpose behind them, but you are reminded of his love for you, being reminded that the Father chose you, the Spirit sanctifies you, and the Son redeems you. And in light of what Christ has done for you, your response is love. Lord, I take a look at the life of Christ and his temporary suffering and his eternal glory, and Lord, I can rejoice in my temporary suffering and the trials I face because I know the glory ahead does not compare to the present tribulation that I see. The invitation for you and I is to ground our faith in our love for God and our love for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord in response to what he has done for us. Take your focus off of the problems and the temporary trials and tribulations and fix your eyes on the Lord. That is our invitation this morning. And so we're reminded of the present joy that we have. And so if I could give you a few takeaways, the first one would be this. Uh, refuse to deny the reality of suffering. Uh, Peter doesn't. He tells us that for a time, that although it has a purpose, you're grieving. But in the midst of the suffering, ask God to help you see the, the greater purpose. James puts it this way in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let, us, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without a reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, when, when I'm chatting with folks or I'm going through a trial or tribulation or a hardship, you know, these kinds of texts are easier to, to read and preach than they are to apply, right? And so this morning, you may be going through a hardship and a trial and tribulation. You're saying, I'm having a hard time applying this right here, right now, even though I'm listening to it and I agree with it. Lord, how do I, how do I apply this? You apply it simply by leaning into the person and work of Christ. Trials, what they do for us is they take our, our dependence off of ourselves and our focus off of our selfishness. And we're reminded of how much we need him. And when you turn to Christ, he will give you everything you need. And so the application is very simple. As you reflect on what Christ has done on your behalf through the salvific work of the Trinitarian work of God on your behalf, simply lean into him, chat with him, have a conversation with him, and talk with him. And it's amazing what God will do through that simple conversation. And then tomorrow when you wake up and you're struggling again, have a conversation with them again. You know what our relationship with God is like? It's a moment by moment dependence upon him. As we grow in our understanding, we need him every moment of every hour of every day. And so what encouraging words are we given in discouraging times? He reminds us of our past election. He reminds us of our future inheritance. He reminds us of our present rejoicing. We see the purposes behind our trials. He doesn't waste anything. And then lastly, we're reminded of his past revelation that reveals the greatness of our salvation. 
You want to talk about a great work of God. The greatest work of God is the greatest, is the greatness of the salvation he has bought for us. Why is our salvation great? Verse 10, because it was foretold by the prophets. This is not some new idea that God came up with somewhere in history. This is a plan of God for salvation that God has set out before the foundations of the world. It says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Ooh, this word is precious. This word is precious because it gives us the revelation of who God is. We want to build our lives on it. We want to... We want to we want to guide and direct the church in regards to it because this is the master plan. And so we read it, we, we honor it, we, we submit our lives to it. And the reason our salvation is great is because it was foretold by the prophets. <laughs> our salvation is great because it was, all, our salvation is great because it also foretold of, of the suffering of Christ and his future glory. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, Jesus is temporary suffering, eternal glory. And then lastly, our salvation is great in verse 12 because our salvation is a fulfillment to prophecy. It tells us, verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. You get to go to heaven someday and you're going to meet the prophets of old. You're going to meet guys like Isaiah who foretold of the salvation that would come through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who foretold the suffering servant, but he didn't see it from the perspective of the death, the, the, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have that perspective. You and I have a great salvation because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. What a wonderful thing. I can't imagine when Isaiah, one of the prophets, see what Christ does in the future in fulfillment of the prophecies they got to see and say, whoa, that is just mind-blowing. Leaves me in awestruck wonder. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Only he in his great wisdom could accomplish what he has done. And then the text, just a side note, I love how Peter throws this in, things which angels desire to look into. Peaks the curiosity of angelic hosts. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that you are distinct from the angels and more loved and cared for even than the angels in regards to salvation? Did you know there are fallen angels out there? But no plan of redemption for them. The fallen angels and the demons are going to spend eternity without God and his people forever and ever set apart as a place that is indeed a hellish existence. But you and I are offered the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, that was prophesied of old and was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This morning, my prayer is that you would be encouraged in discouraging times. 
whether you're facing discouraging times or good times or maybe even persecution in the future, that the letter of 1 Peter would be something you pack away in your back pocket and you are reminded of what you need to be grounded in in regards to your faith and what God has accomplished on your behalf. And in doing so, you would rejoice. I'll leave you with a few takeaways. The first one is if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, the invitation is to receive him. And as you receive him, receive the forgiveness of sin, admit your need for him, admit that Jesus is the only answer to your problem, and then walk in the victory that he offers you. Receive him, and then share this message with as many people as possible. I'd like to close with this this morning. I got a call from my brother on on a Thursday, his son was my nephew. He, was, he just turned seven years old on Saturday. And my brother called me and he said, hey, my son's been up to no good in school. And he got called in to the principal's office, you know. And he said that night he, he took him home and he chatted with him. And, and he said, son, he, you know, disciplined him. And, and then said, tomorrow, if something comes up again, we're going to have to have another conversation but it's the discipline's gonna get a little bit worse. <laughs> and so the next day, he got a phone call, had another problem, and my brother left work and headed to go pick up his son. And his called up his wife and said, well, we're gonna have to really give it to him. And as he headed home, he said, before I, I disciplined him, he said, I, I went and I... Uh, uh, I just said, you know, I should probably eat something before I do this. And so he ate some food. And as he ate some food, he, he was praying, washing the dishes after, afterwards. And as he was preparing to go over, to walk over to his son. And he said, you know, the Lord impressed it on my heart. This is a great opportunity to talk to my son about accepting Christ as his Savior, Lord. And he talked to his son and, and talked to him about justice. And said, son, I'm going to talk to you about this punishment. I told you yesterday, you, this is what you are going to get and you're expecting it. Fear in the eyes of his son. And he said, that's justice. You get what you deserve. We told you yesterday, you're going to get it. And then he shared with him mercy. Son, do you know what mercy is all about? Mercy is withholding what you deserve. You deserve this judgment but, this morning, but today I want to show you mercy. I'm going to withhold what you deserve and I'm going to show you grace and you're going to get what you don't deserve. And you know what he took hit my nephew out? He took him out to ice cream afterwards and instead of getting what he deserved, he got grace. And then after that, my brother sat down with him. He's been in church, this boy, seven years old. He's heard the gospel again and again. But Friday was the moment it clicked. He understood of sin and his need for salvation. And my nephew accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord this past Friday. And we rejoice over his salvation. We know ultimately the Lord's going to reveal if indeed it's genuine, we're going to continue to pray for him. But what a blessing to know that mercy is not getting what we deserve. Justice is getting what we deserve, but grace is getting what we don't deserve and getting it in abundance. If you have not received the grace and the mercy of the Lord, I want to invite you to experience that this morning. Can we pray? Father in heaven, we rejoice when we get to hear about salvation. We, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you do 
through the person and work of Christ. We thank you for the Father's choosing. We thank you for the Spirit's sanctifying work. We thank you for the Son's redemption through the blood that is sprinkled and is the payment for our sin. Uh, Father, this morning, I want to pray for anyone who's facing a hardship this morning, a trial, a tribulation, a difficulty. And I pray in this moment that you would make much of Christ in their mind. I pray, Lord, that you would see them through the trial and the tribulation. Texts like this are easier said than done, but Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we just pray you would encourage and strengthen the faith of those who are here today and would ground it in your work and your word. Father, I want to pray for anyone who never has trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord, but this morning they would say, yeah, I'm deserving of justice, God's wrath and his judgment. I'm deserving of, of an eternity without God and his people because I was born into this world with a heart in a state of rebellion. And today I want to I receive Christ into my life. I pray that they can say this. Father, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. I'm a sinner and that sin separates me. But I know that the reason Jesus came from heaven to earth and died on a cross was to forgive my sins and grant me everlasting life. I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. To make, today I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, as we leave this place, may we have a greater view of God. and May we glorify you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.